Coming up, little Nell Campbell and Patricia Quinn take over the House of Krauss to talk about the making of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And the last Neanderthal author, Claire Cameron, swings by to talk about her book. When Mick Jagger came, we couldn't perform that night because some glitter had got caught in the foreskin of the, one of the actors, the actor that played Rocky. When I get into something like Neanderthals, how do I keep the rest of my life going and my hairbrush? It doesn't take itself seriously, the film, even though it affects people seriously. I keep writing about Neanderthals and I shouldn't be. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Come on in. Pull up a bean bag, sit down, enjoy a Negroni, and listen to the interviews as the words fly through the air. You know, 42 years ago, the Rocky Horror Picture Show said time is fleeting. It doesn't seem like it could possibly be 42 years since that movie came out. Well, maybe it seems like it couldn't have been that long ago because it has really never left theaters. It still plays constantly, usually at midnight, usually with a house full of drunks watching it, but hey, that's okay. It's really fun stuff, and in a little while, you're going to hear all about the making of that movie from two people that were there. Little Nell, that's Nell Campbell, and Patricia Quinn. They were Columbia and Magenta. First up, though, I want you to meet Claire Cameron. Claire Cameron is the author of The Last Neanderthal. It's in bookstores right now, and it is the enthralling story of two women separated by millennia. That's a long time. That's like thousands of years, but linked by an epic journey that will transform them both. Claire Cameron is a fascinating writer. Uh, she takes a kind of technical approach. There's a lot of science in here, but uh, it's imaginative stuff, and this book looks like it's going to be a bestseller. This book, if it follows the other ones she's written, like The Bear and The Line Painter, will also win a whole bunch of awards. Here's my chat with Claire Cameron about The Last Neanderthal. What is your background that this is something that would have grabbed your attention in the first place? Um, I got interested because I read, um, I think it was in 2010, about this discovery. And as a novelist, what it means, if I have Neanderthal DNA, and I have 2.5%, I did one of those Really? Tests. The spit yeah, can test? you tell? Can yeah. You tell? Um, yeah, my brow is protruding That's over the right. microphone. But uh, it, what that means is that we interbred with Neanderthals and had some kind of relationship with them. Right. And I wanted to know about that. I'm a history major, but I, I wanted to know what went on. Because that kind of speculation was previous, it was like people who wrote porn on the internet wrote about 200,000 <laughs> homo sapiens interacting. You know, it wasn't thought of as a credible thing. So I went looking for the story, but it wasn't there. Um, because science can only take you so far. Evidence can only take you so far. So I thought, you know, I want to write about this, but I want to do it plausibly. And I thought, I think it is up to a novelist sometimes to take a risk of imagining a world that scientists can't. And so your history, you have a history background yeah. rather than a science background. Yes, yes. And so does that color how you would look at this story at all? I think it frees me up somewhat. Yeah. Um, but I did about five years of research. I worked with a academic at Stony Brook in um, New York, and we developed this test. And it was so he told me about reading an older Neanderthal novel that wasn't plausible to him, and he actually got so mad that he threw it over it, his is shoulder. Is this like a subgenre that I don't know anything about? Neanderthal there, novels? Well, I don't know. There's like Clan 
of the cave bear. Yeah, yeah. A lot of women my age kind of, it was like you read Judy Bloom and then you were past right. Canada. <laughs> there, you kind of graduated. Um, but so he chucked this novel over his shoulder and it landed in the waste paper basket behind him. So we, we had what we call the waste paper basket test. So anytime right. I wrote something that made him so angry he couldn't take it, <laughs> he'd make a note. So it went, I, I kind of actually would like a BA or something, maybe honorary. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I did yeah. a lot of studying. But as a novelist, you have to lose that too. I didn't, I don't want it, I wanted it to be about the inner life mm-hmm. of Neanderthals. And, and so tell me about that. What do, what don't, what don't we know about Neanderthals? Okay, so here, a really good example is, and a question that we all want to know is, could they talk? Did they yeah. have language? So um, they had a hyoid bone, which anchors the tongue in us. It's a U-shaped bone in your throat, and it means that I can say all sorts of words, mm-hmm. and I have dexterous language. They had the FOXP2 gene as well, which is um, in us enable speech and communication. So those are two things we know, and like chimps and orangutans don't have those, right. for example. Um, there's a specialist who says they probably had high-pitched voices, so they had short... So we think of them as grunting, right? right? She thinks it was probably loud, louder, and loudest. You know, they had to force their voice out. And uh, high-pitched, too, which is funny to think. We think of them as these, like, hairy, grunting men, but they probably had high-pitched, loud voices. Something like Carol Channing or something. Yeah, exactly. There's a new... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, But... What I thought is, okay, they, I can build a culture around those facts. Right. So I thought they live in small family groups. They have uh, intimate knowledge of each other's lives. If they're forcing at words, they probably didn't talk as much right. um, as we do. And I made up a word for that, that they, if they could hear me now, they'd say, you sound like a crow throat. You're like flapping all the time. <laughs> and one of the things here that it says about this uh, book is that it, it makes us reconsider what it means to be human. A lot, yeah. That's, and, <laughs> and how so? So many novels. Well, that, that, but, that, that, but that's pretty, that's, that's pretty, uh, yeah. you know, highfalutin stuff. So highfalutin tell me about stuff. That. Well, I, it's written from the perspective of Neanderthals. So right. Neanderthals through history and through our stories in our science have been kind of derided or, you know, like Neanderthals in the news right now because everyone's calling Trump and his political views a Neanderthal, for example. Um, But much of what how we've looked at them has been through trying to define what's special about us and why we're still alive and they aren't. Um, what the research shows is that they were very, very much like us um, to the point where we could have sex with them. Um, And if we start respecting them and thinking of them as similar to us, then we have to sort of reconsider what our role is in the planet as well, I think. And is that what you hope people take away from this book? I guess. I'm not really, I don't need people to take things away. I do want people to think. um, And what I like in a good book is one that's entertaining, but also stimulates thought. So that's what I hope. But I I see a a novel as something that's really collaborative, you know, that the reader brings as much to it as I do. And how do you maintain interest in one project over, you said you did research for five years. I was just thinking that when Sandra was like, oh, I can hear something and then, yeah, you know, it's, it's whip it out that yeah. night. And it, what a luxury. Cause, and, I, you know, I'll probably still be ruminating over our conversation and think of like the best line, right, one yeah, liner, yeah, yeah. but that'll yeah. come like three years from now. <laughs> Email me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 
I think that's when you know you have something that's worth writing about when you get obsessed. Right. I get obsessed. So it's more like how do I, when I get into something like Neanderthals, how do I keep the rest of my life going and my <laughs> hair brushed, which <laughs> I don't very successfully. <laughs> but. It, it, we, we've just got a few seconds left. Is it hard to let it go then? Yes. Yeah. I keep yeah. writing about Neanderthals and I shouldn't be. That was Claire Campbell talking about The Last Neanderthal. Now, the film Rocky Horror Picture Show turns 42 years old this year, but Little Nell, that's Little Nell Campbell, who played Columbia in the film, and Patricia Quinn, who was the usherette and Magenta in the original stage show, and then went on just to play Magenta when they cut the usherette part from the film, have both been with this story for a whole lot longer than 42 years, since the beginning in 1973. What follows is their wild and woolly account of what it's been like to, as Patricia Quinn says, be with the Rocky Horror Picture Show Circus for four and a half decades. Thank you both for being here. Pleasure, treasure. So, Yes, now, wonderful, thank you. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Now, you were discovered outside of a London theater as a busker. That's what that's the the way the legend goes as I heard it. What was it do you think that caught Richard O'Brien's eye and Jim Sharman's eye? My enormous talent. <laughs> yes. Yes. You, and, you know, the, uh, put me in a street, darling, and I shine. Darling, now I saw Nell on the King's Road. She was the only girl at the time with pink hair in the whole of London. It was extraordinary. What year was that? 1823. <laughs> yeah, that, no, no, it wasn't, no, because people didn't have pink hair or busk in the streets then. They probably busked, but the King's Road wasn't fashionable then, I don't think. Anyway, so there was this girl uh, tapping with pink hair it was Nell Campbell, and she tapped with a guy called Julian. He was a mime, like of the Marcel Marceau uh, thing. Mm -hmm. Dress uh, Piero. Oh, really? Yeah. Was he? I forgot that. Yeah. So I, I've forgotten how that worked. Well, anyway, actually, he might not have been dressed as Piero then, but uh, yes. Well, I used to dress as a boxer often. <laughs> And, I forgot. That's yeah, amazing. And I used to have, wear boxing gloves and sing that song, The Kid's Last Fight. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> I know. I love it. And and you were selling clothes as well at the same That's around the same right. time, right next to Freddie Mercury. In yeah, a stall. I taught him everything he knows. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, he used to. He he was had a boot stall, the very those platform boots with yeah. inlaid stars and whatever on them. I and had I, those. They yeah. were made by Gohill, uh, the Indian uh, cobbler in Camden Town. Well, he, Freddie was selling those. Wow. And he would tell me about some, you know, band that he put together and blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. Wow. Good luck with that, Freddie. <laughs> keep, keep the selling the, uh, That's the boots. That's wonderful. <laughs> keep that day job. And, uh, Patricia, you... Uh, heard about I was this. selling clothes in the Portobello Road, but you were missed you? that. Mm. And 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 I I didn't know that. So <laughs> yeah, you were selling I, clothes. that's not in my uh, CV. Uh, I was like a seventeen, eighteen year old girl in Chelsea, and I um, was selling nineteen forties, nineteen thirties original dresses, gorgeous. And and that's how you were making a living and doing some acting jobs on the side. You know, I was always acting and doing selling clothes on the side. And then uh, I got the leading part of a uh, leading girl in Panto at Bexhill on Sea. So I said goodbye to the Portobello Road <laughs> to join the Penguin Players. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was tragic. And uh, it was um, Peggy, whoever, she ran the Penguin Players. She was the principal boy. Hip and thigh. Okay? <laughs> Hip and thigh? Yes, and to believe that I just had to go and play Panto at Bexhill. And I thought after that, never Panto again. It's two shows a day. It's exhausting. <laughs> but when you heard about this, you called your agent and said, hey, I'd like to do this show. And he said, ah, it's not worth our trouble. It's only 18 pounds a week. No, it's not quite true. That's not quite no, true? No, no, no. I said to him, he said at Rocky Horror Show, upstairs Royal Court, 18 quid a week, blah, 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 uh, three weeks. And um, I said, what is this show? What's it about? He said, I think it's something about a circus. <laughs> I don't know. I thought he it said, was six weeks. No, it wasn't. It became six weeks. It was three weeks, and we were asked to stay on because we were popular and we were a success. So they said, would you do another two weeks, was five weeks, because we're going to move it. Right, but I just can't believe that they'd ever put a show together for just a three-week run. Mm. Of course Costumes they did. Yeah, it was um, like 60-seat theatre, yeah. fringe, royal court. Because we know, rehearsed for three weeks, didn't we? Yes, it's such a very short time, isn't it? It is a very short time. But and here we are I'm telling you, and they are, I know, but they asked me to do another two weeks, which was five, and I had a nanny at the time. I handed her my 18 quid. That was her wages. <laughs> I said, I can't afford to do another two weeks at this money. Sorry, mate. And they said, please, Pat, because we're going to move it. This show is going to move. Mm -hmm. Well, before it moved, though, it became uh, a giant hit. I mean, Mick Jagger was coming, Princess Margaret was coming to the... What was it like backstage knowing that you were doing something that was new, that felt really fresh, I imagine, for the moment, and that these giant stars, the sort of glitterati of London at the time, were coming to see you? It's funny you mention the glitterati because some of the people you've mentioned, when Mick Jagger came, we couldn't perform that night because some glitter had got caught in the foreskin of the, one of the actors, the actor that played Rocky. He so, has since said he was circumcised. Interesting. <laughs> I know, so where did it go? Something was, terrible happened. No, a doctor was, had to come and check him out and said that the show cannot go on. <laughs> That's right. And Nell kept saying that evening, I'll play Rocky. I'll play Rocky. That's right. This little slip of a girl. Yeah. And the, and the we had Jim Jagger in the audience and it was the last night at the at the Royal Court mm -hmm. upstairs. Yes, and Mick was in. I mean, God, it did. Yeah. And I loved it. Jim Sharman said, show cancelled. And I'm sorry, I was a mother at the time. And I thought, thank God I don't have to do it. Oh! <gasps> <laughs> Then, from there, you move theatres several times, and then the movie happens. And, you know, the movie has become legendary, but the, the shooting of it, I think, from what I've read, is almost as legendary. It's shot in just five or six weeks, which is a very short six. time. for a to... musical, amazing. Mm -hmm. And But it was shot, I always assumed, on a big soundstage somewhere, but it, it that's not the case, right? It was shot in a, in a, from what my reading tells me, an old kind of derelict house next to... Hammer yes, Studios. no, it wasn't. We did have a sound stage where all the main things, like the time warp and whatever, mm -hmm. were played. Uh, the derelict house, Bray Studios. Yeah. Yes, the old Hammer Horror Studios, and um, we had a sound stage. But um, Brian Thompson, the designer, suddenly spotted the house, which had gone into ruin because they'd taken the lead off the roof, so it would go into disrepair because they wanted the land. And he said, "What's that over there?" He said, "Let's take it." That was. 
that's what made this film, apart from everything else, was that we got the house. So we mm -hmm. had the laboratory on top and the gargoyles and the door and all of that. But inside, the floorboards were falling apart. Um, falling apart at the seams. <laughs> and anyway, so, uh, so um, we shot the dinner scene in that house uh, with meatloaf um, because um, we have the doors and we shot... The, the staircase with Dr. Scott going up on the wire with his, um, yep. you know, and our bedroom in the house now, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. But lots of it, most, like all the big stuff, laboratory stuff, everything took place on the sound stage. On the sound stage. Yes. What, what do you remember about the, was it, did it feel rushed while you were doing it? But you, you knew everybody because yes, you had been working well, exactly, with them for a long time. Exactly, except for Susan and Barry. and Barry. Who slotted in like a glove. It Absolutely. was wonderful. Yeah. I, I I do remember being aware that uh, 20th Century Fox were breathing down Jim Sharman's neck, the director. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And it was freezing bloody cold in that place. We <laughs> were so cold. But we were, you know... But we, we didn't complain, did we, now? We never complained. Only Susan, who kept telling the world that her main thing about Rocky Horror when she's ever asked is that she got pneumonia. Yeah. And I'm sure there's something more interesting to say than that. <laughs> <laughs> Like who she was sleeping with at the time. Oh! Frank! Is there a story there that we should know? Move on, next question. Okay, next question. Oh, she's such a gossip. I know. No, I a know. gossip would have told the answer. <laughs> oh, sorry. If I turn the microphones off, will you know she's the answer? Su she's such a tease. <laughs> so... Patricia, you have, a, a, you, you're, it's radio, so no one can see you, but you have uh, lips on your purse. There's I a have lovely Lulu brooch. Guinness's uh, lip bag. And, yeah. and, and you're wearing lips? Yes, on Andrew Logan, the sculptor, makes my lips. And because you have probably the most famous lips in cinema history. Isn't it stunning? That's but a great way of pushing it. The best thing in the world. That's wonderful. Eat your heart out, Mick Jagger. <laughs> Tell him about how that was a, a very a last. Yes. Yeah. You know, how did that happen? Because... But what I wanted to say very fast, if you say I have the lips in cinema history, what I want to tell you is that in the 40th anniversary of Rocky Horror, we have uh, first of all we're the biggest cult film in the world. Second, we're one of the top five grossing in the world. Uh, wonder who got that money. <laughs> and um, and third, and the best best bit, and this gave me a shiver, is that we have now made cinema history. The reason for that is everyone says to me, what about Gone with the Wind? And mm -hmm. I say, that went. <laughs> the reason is we're the only film ever, never to leave the cinema. Yeah, we're the Bye -bye. longest running film of all time. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. 40, yeah. It's for 42 years now, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, it was 40 year a minute ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We were at the Royal Albert Hall, Nell and Pat, celebrating that to 6,000 people sold out. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, tell me about shooting the, the famous opening of the movie, the uh, science fiction double feature. It's your lips. And it was kind of an uncomfortable shoot, though, from what I understand. Who told you that? Well, it's an interview <laughs> that you did. You couldn't move. They had to, to bring a stand Oh, in I and... see. That way uncomfortable. No, it yeah. wasn't that. It's because Richard O'Brien stole my song and mm. sang science fiction. I sang it on the stage. Right. And uh, he sang it for the film. And I thought they maybe got Shirley Bassey in, like, Goldfinger, because yeah. she could sing better than I could. <laughs> but it was him. Him! Well, and it, I said, you stole my... 
It's yeah. not even yeah. like song. I hate the you. Show. I hate you. I hate you. Anyway, so on the last day, Jim Sharman said to me, Pat, it was a wrap. It was finished. Goodbye, everyone. Last Over. day of filming. It's a wrap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wrap, wrap, wrap. Anyway, and he said to me, Pat, I wonder, have you ever seen Man Ray's Lips, the painting of lips in the sky, a disembodied mouth, which actually I've read since were the lips of his mistress and it's wonderful over <laughs> Montmartre. It is a wonderful image. And um, I said, no, I've never seen that. He said, well, I have an idea. I think what we'd like to do is use your lips um, to um, mime to science fiction because I knew science fiction yeah. from on the stage. Also had a pair of lips. Anyway, so he says, he said, uh, could you do that? And I said, my lips and his voice? How much? That would cost you. Anyway, so we got to the lips and we went to Elstree Studios and I was now on the West End stage with my name and lights, which Nell lived in a flat across the road and she and I stood there in her flat and took pictures of my name and lights. It was wonderful. It's not easy to get your name up there and lights, you know. And uh, then they rang me and said, will you come and do the lips now? I thought, the lips? Oh, yeah. So I went to Elstree for the day and it was so sad because Elstree was completely dark. Nothing was being made, no film, nothing. It was empty except for me sitting outside on a chair being completely blacked out face and made up a pair of lips. And then I went into the studio and they had no special effects, no way to do this. So they were shooting with a camera with a little um, cutout thing over it and trying to focus. But as I moved my mouth, um, your face moves, you know, head moves. And I was going out of frame. The lips were going out of frame all the time. And that's when the guy said, uh, you see that arc lamp, take it out of that. Take that uh, thing and uh, take the... Clamp. Screw it out and take the clamps and clamp her in. <laughs> so they did. They screwed my head like in. Frankenstein. You know, yeah. So I So I couldn't move. And at the time, it was phone calls, phone calls from my husband saying how much he wanted to divorce. And I said, look, will you tell him I can't speak to him now? I'm clamped. <laughs> and how did you react when a studio executive described your lips as lewd and lascivious? Did he? Yes. The highest form of flattery. Wow. He was upset, apparently. Who said that? It was a studio executive that I read about. Uh, when he first saw the film, he thought that it was uh, over the top. Oh, what a hoot. How divine. Yeah. That must have been when Jim Sharman said to me at one point, Jim Sharman, lick your lips, you know, because he's Mm -hmm. shouting out directions as I was doing it. I thought, oh, okay. You know, and that that bit's quite good. It's great, (laughs) that bit. Yeah. And uh, now you play Columbia in the film. You have the solo verse in in Time Time Warp. Uh, How often do people come to you? And sing, or or uh, you know, tell you how much that meant to them. Well, I think it was the tap dance solo yeah. that yeah. makes it more uh, original. <laughs> uh, well, they people, many people have told me they took up tap dancing because of that. So that's really? always great. <laughs> um, and uh, I, what can I say? Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Nell Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing. When we go to these conventions, we often go to a Rocky Horror showing and the shadow cast are playing. And Nell was the first one of all of us because I used to make out that when I'm 90, I'll take up a job as shadowing myself in Vegas. <laughs> 
when I'm 90, you yeah. know, need the money maybe. But uh, Nell, when she first saw herself being portrayed by a young girl on the stage in Orlando, Nell jumped up, pushed her aside and took over. Oh, her girl's got And away. I thought, oh, my God. I mean, she's uh, ruined everything. We're meant to do that in Vegas when we're 90. <laughs> and then the next thing is Barry got up. Oh, no, I got up because I thought I pushed magenta aside and did <laughs> that part. And then Barry got up and put his leg in the air. <laughs> so she started, you know, us all jumping up and shoving sh shadow casts off the screen or off the stage. Is it true, Patricia, that you once invited Prince Charles to see the show but suggested that he show up in his underwear? Yes, and that's absolutely true. Because my, <laughs> I was on the road. I went on the road 21 years later on stage with Rocky Horror to celebrate 21 years. And that was extraordinary. But we came into the Duke of York's theatre for six months. So it was OK. And um, my husband, Sir Robert Stevens, said to the prince, um, you must catch Pat in her show in Sheffield. I believe you're going to be in Sheffield next week. And so I said, oh, yes, Robert, fine, OK. And anyway, so then Sir said to me a, f a few months later, he said, Pat, I'm so sorry I missed your show. Uh, I, but I could hardly turn up in, you know, garters and fishnets. <laughs> and I said, no, but you could have come as Brad the Nerd. And I thought, oh, God, what have I said? <laughs> uh, he said, the, uh, yes, I said, in a lab coat and Y fronts. And he said, the Nerd. And I said, uh, yes. And he said, did you ever see the play The Nerd by Rowan Atkinson? I said, never. He said, it was marvellous. And I thought, oh, phew. <laughs> <laughs> You worked your way out of that sticky situation. I would have prince. thought he was often in garters. <laughs> That's your opinion now. <laughs> what do you think the lasting appeal of Rocky Horror is? Oh, well, I just think, strangely enough, it's hit a nerve with people. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that the sexuality of it has, has made it um, even more special than other films that have cult followings. Because it's, first of all, it doesn't take itself seriously, the film, even though it affects people seriously. And because there's just so many, you know, small-town Americans that find it very hard being out there if they've got any sort of sexual innuendo or whatever their inclinations are, or just people that feel, you know, not as conventional as the locals, I think it's, it's given them... Um, it's given them sort of a safety net or, or it's given them a key to, yes, I can be like this and, and have a great time. And so they they meet at the at the midnight screenings and make it have a new find a community and that helps them move from how they're feeling, if they're feeling isolated, into the big wide world. And it's helped so many people in that way. But I do think that the fact that it's a perfect little musical and I say little only because it was a when we were performing it, it was ninety minutes yeah. long. And uh, so great songs, great short book, very funny and witty and not a dud song in it. And um, the hot, so the package is just a, it's a perfect package as well as affecting people in the other way with the, the fact that, you know, it's men and men sleeping together, men and women. You know, it's like buy, try, cross. Darling, you put people <laughs> off. It's early in the morning. Uh, no, no. Anyway. It's a joke. 
Well, it, now, my thing is this, uh, that we started off at the um, King's Road, why, uh, Vivian Westwood was down the road with uh, M- Malcolm McLaren, and I, at the time, we were doing sex, drugs, and rock and roll and kicking our heels up. We didn't have a message, and the don't dream it, don't be it. And Richard O'Brien himself, to this very day, keeps on and on and on about that it's a fairy tale. It's based on, you know, Hansel and Gretel, the, the legendary tale of the two kids come to the big bad house you know and it's a folklore from forever mm-hmm. he's he keeps saying that even now that's what he goes on about and um it's been amazing how i mean a girl came up to me the other day i don't mention in case parents don't let anyone go to see this but she came up to me and she was shivering and quaking and, and she handed me a little card and it was terribly sweet and it was a little the card she drew for me and she said thank you and i opened it said for turning me gay i said oh lord i said it's it was a pleasure <laughs> what are you doing later tonight? <laughs> Hope you gave you a hotel room number. Uh, oh no, you're shocking! Well, and now uh, she I was saw, a child. I saw the Rocky Horror Show in about 1979 at the Comedy Theater. You had wow. You had moved on. It's now the Harold Harold Pinter Theater. But I will tell you that when I, I was yeah, with that 15, 16 guy. years old or something like that. And I bought uh, the poster that you could buy in the lobby, the silk yeah. screen poster. Wow. And I rolled it up and promptly forgot about it until about five years ago when I found it. It's in and perfect now you're condition. A well, no, now it's hanging in my house, framed, and it's uh, beautiful, and oh, it's great. and it's the face. But whose face lo- is it on that poster? Do you know? Well, I find this killing. First of all, I don't know who painted that poster. Do you? No. It, it's and the- it isn't anyone's face. It's no one's face. No. 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 And it used to be on the side of buses and yeah. whatever. It is extraordinary. And I, it's killing that one doesn't know who the artist was. I'm amazed it's you don't know. It's not signed, but it's, a beauti- it's back in the day when they used to silkscreen those things. And yeah. it's a but really actually, we've gorgeous just done, uh, piece of art. Yeah, you know? we've just done an interview with Jim Sharman at the BFI because mm-hmm. uh, he's doing a documentary about the Royal Court Theatre. A friend right. of mine's making a film about that. And Jim was there. And I'm dying to be a fly on the wall. I mean, I'd love to hear what he's got to say. He'll know who made the poster, Sir yeah. Brian Thompson. And Sue Blaine should know. Find out and let me know. I will. I have to give you back to your to your handsome handlers. Oh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank okay, you so very, much. Very for that's Mr. French, Mr. <laughs> Daniel French, and he's a wonderful PR. <laughs> See you at Fan Expo. Absolutely. Yeah, Fan Expo. Absolutely. And uh, I'm hosting the event with you. So, Woo, great. Yeah. You're good. It'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks. Honestly, I could not have loved them both more. I grew up on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I've seen it, I don't know, hundreds of times. Always had a great time watching it. I got to host an event with them. They were so much fun. The audience loved them. I loved them. They're all over the place, but that's kind of the charm of having people who are cult heroes in the House of Crows. But that's it. That's all we have for this show. Time for you to pack your stuff, maybe go off to school, do whatever it is you're doing. It's September now. I don't know what you do when you're not here. But uh, make sure you come back and see us next week. We'll have an all-new show every single Monday. We put up a new show for you. You never know who's going to swing by. It may be one of your favorite people. So make sure that you come back and visit us often.